Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. The title of the message this morning is Paul's Boldness for the Lord. Acts chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 20 through 31. As you're turning there, last week we saw a great excerpt from the life of Ananias. And we learned four things about Ananias that made him stand out as a great example to all of us. Uh, first, away, right, first of all, right away in the text, it said that he was a disciple of the Lord. And we learned that a disciple is one who does three things. He follows his master wherever his master goes. He follows his master. Uh, then he learns everything that his master can teach him. And then puts into practice everything he has learned. So first of all, Ananias was a disciple. Secondly, we learn from the text that Ananias listened to the Lord. And we said the only way to know what the Lord is telling us is to be very close to him so that we can hear him when he speaks. And God most often speaks through the word of God. So we need to be spending time in the word of God so that we can know when he is speaking to us. Thirdly, we learn that Ananias was afraid to do what the Lord told him to do. Fear is a common thing. Fear is a natural thing. But one more thing that we learned about Ananias, number four, is that he obeyed God despite his fear. And God worked mightily through him. And he has had, had an opportunity to have a great impact on the life of Saul, who would then named be Paul later. Well, today we're going to learn about Paul's boldness for the Lord. Uh, hopefully, as we touched on last week, we'll learn that walking with the Lord is not always an easy road to travel. However, with God, all things are possible. Amen? He's with us. He goes before us. He goes with us. He comes behind us. And God's Word reminds us that greater is He that is in us than he that is in the world. He gives us the ability, 2 Timothy says, He's not given us the spirit of fear, but of boldness and of power and a sound mind. Acts 1, he says, He's given us all power. Uh, we have the ability to do what God has called us to do, despite a difficult road that He may have us to travel. Uh, I want to begin this morning by reading verses 20 through 31. So if you would follow along as I read these verses. Beginning with verse 20. It says, immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues, he is the son of God. But all who heard him were astounded and said, isn't this the man who in Jerusalem was destroying those who called on his name and then came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests? But Saul grew more capable and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this one is the Messiah. After many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, so they were watching the gates day and night, intending to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, since they did not believe he was a disciple. Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Saul was coming and going with him in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they attempted to kill him. And when the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. You remember as we 
looked in Acts chapter 6, I believe it was, the dispute between the, the Jewish people that were there, this dispute is not a new one. It's still going on. It's, they're still fighting and griping and complaining going on, and they don't like what Paul or what Saul is saying to them at this point. But I want us to back up just for a few moments. Saul was beginning to notice or realize that walking with Jesus was not always going to be an easy path. In fact, in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, just back a few verses, it says, Go, for this man has chosen my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and the Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. And when you think about this just for a moment, there's a key word in those verses that really jumps off the page. He says, the Lord, notice that the Lord did not say how much he might suffer. Did you catch that? Not how much he might suffer. He uses a different word. The Lord said how much he must suffer for my name's sake. I mean, God was going to use his suffering, if you will, to mold him into a vessel of his making. So Saul is beginning to realize that walking with Jesus was not going to be an easy path. It was not going to be an easy road to travel. And uh, we get a glimpse of this as we go on. Up to, those, up to this point, Saul had it a bit easier. He was on the good side of the chief priests and so forth. Now he's the enemy. And think about this just for a moment. He's not only the enemy of the chief priests. He's also, if you will, the enemy of the disciples, the good guys, because he has a reputation, as you recall. In fact, let me just remind you just a little bit of his reputation. Look at Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Now, you remember at the end of Acts chapter 7, Stephen, as the first martyr, was put to death. And Acts chapter 8 says, Saul agreed with putting him to death. So Saul was not a nice guy. He agreed with it that Stephen should die. In fact, it says, on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. I mean, Saul really was not a nice person, was he? Look in Acts chapter 9, beginning with verse 13 and 14. It says, Lord, and I said, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priests and arrest, to arrest all who come call on your name. Once again, he has the authority from the chief priests to destroy all those who called on Jesus' name. Look down verse 21. It says, but all who heard him were astounded and said, Isn't this the man who in Jerusalem was destroying those who called on this name and then came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests? I mean, he wasn't a nice guy. Look at verse 26. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe that he was a disciple. He was not a nice guy. You could say this, he had a reputation and for good reason. But God was going to show him how much he must suffer for his name's sake. And Paul is beginning to realize that not only is it a difficult road to travel, it's going to be a lonely road for a while. 
Because now, as he's leaving the chief priests and all the religious crowd aside and putting them aside, he's now trying to associate with the disciples of Christ, and they're leery. They don't want anything to do with him because he just may turn on us. Is this for real? Is it not? You've heard the phrase, the proof is in the pudding. We're going to see the proof here real quickly that it's not an easy path, but God began to do a work in the life of Saul. But here's the result of not having friendship with any longer with the chief priest and not really being close to the disciples just yet. Look in Acts chapter 9 verse 23. It says, after many days had passed, the Jews conspired to what? Kill him. That sounds fun. Look at verse 29. He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they attempted to, what's the word? Kill him. I mean, sign me up, right? I mean, that's the life we all want to live, a life of fear that not only can I not quite trust the disciples because they don't trust me, I, I can't really go back to my former life, and everybody wants to kill me. I have no friends. It's a lonely life. There's also a bit of reality here. Most of us have never had to deal with this sort of persecution. Most of us have never had to deal with this. Would you agree? Most of us pray we never have to. But that day may come. Will you stand? In fact, what do you think gave Saul the boldness and the power to proclaim the gospel in the midst of great difficulty and opposition? Well, turn your Bibles, keep your finger there in Acts chapter 9, but go over to the end of the chapter in verse 20, or chapter 26, excuse me. Acts chapter 26. Uh, I want to begin reading here with verse 4, and I want you to get a glimpse of the story of, of what's taking place, what's unfolding as Paul here and is now proclaiming uh, what God has done. Beginning with verse 4, says, All the Jews know my way of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem. They had previously known me for quite some time if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand on trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The promise our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve him night and day. King Agrippa, I am being accused by the Jews because of this hope. Why is it considered incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? In fact, I myself supposed it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus the Nazarene. I mean, do you hear this? He said, I thought it was necessary as a religious person to go against the name of Jesus Christ. He says, I actually did this in Jerusalem and I locked up many of the saints in prison since I had received authority for that from the chief priests when they were put into death. Put to death, I cast my vote against them. In all the synagogues, I often tried to make them blaspheme by punishing them. I even pursued them to foreign cities since I was greatly enraged at them. I mean, here's Paul giving his testimony now. He was an angry man who worked hard at putting those who followed Christ into prison and even to death. You want the proof of his boldness? It's in the fact that God changed his life. That's incredible to think about this. Going on, verse 12 says, I was traveling to Damascus, and here's his testimony. Under these circumstances, with the authority and commission from the chief priest, King Agrippa, while on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those traveling with me. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice 
speaking to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and what I will reveal to you. I will rescue you from the people and from the Gentiles. I now send you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that by faith in me they may receive forgiveness of sins and share among those who are sanctified. See, now Paul has a purpose for living. He's no longer living for self. He's no longer has a religion. And now he has a relationship with Jesus Christ and he has a focus for which to live. You see, when God changes our life, he gives us a new direction. He gives us a focus that ought to be clear to all of us. Verse 19, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first, and those in Jerusalem, and all the region of Judea, and to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, and do works worthy of repentance. Let me ask you a question. Is that not still a challenge for today? To those who come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, the message has not changed. Once we know Him as our Savior, this is what ought to be in our lives. That we should repent Turn to God, do works worthy of repentance. That ought to be the focus of our life. When the gospel enters our life and we begin to have the relationship with Jesus Christ, we are living no longer for the past, but keeping our eye on the future and what God has called us to. So we see that the boldness comes by the fact that God had given a clear vision as how he's supposed to live. So he's not wondering just day to day wondering what Christians he can persecute and bring back to trial. Now he has a clear vision question. What is the clear vision that God has for you and how you're supposed to live for him? What does Ephesians 2.10 remind us? Well, 8 and 9 he says how we're not saved and how we are saved. And then he says, for we are your work, his workmanship created unto what? Good works. What are we doing for the Lord? What are the works that he's trying to do in and through us? Through his power. The reason Saul had boldness was because now he has a clear vision. He knows he's no longer part of what used to be. In fact, turn over to Galatians chapter 1. Just over to the right here, a couple pages. <coughs> Galatians chapter 1. <coughs> Look at me, verse 11. So now I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel preached by me is not based on human thought. For I did not receive it from human source, and I was not taught it, but it came by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard about the former way of life, my former way of life in Judaism. I persecuted God's church to an extreme degree and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people. Because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. I want you to stop right there just for a moment. What are your traditions? What I mean by this is I want you to contemplate in your own lives how long some of you have been in church. Some of you have been in church for 20, 30, 40 years. And my fear is for many of us who have grown up in church most of our life, we have a lot of rules, regulations, traditions, if you will. Well, I go to church every Sunday because that's what we do on Sunday. I give because that's what I'm supposed to do as a child of God. 
I, I, I wear certain clothes because I don't want to, you know, be like the world. I, I, learn, I listen to certain music because, you know, that's what I'm supposed to do. What are your traditions? What is it that, that have become a rule, a regulation, a way of life, not by conviction, but by tradition? Paul says, listen, I was among the best of them. I knew all the rules, knew all the regulations. I, was, I arose above others in our ranks. He said, I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. I mean, we listen to this music because that's the music we always had. We, we do this because that's what we've always done. Verse 15, but when God who from my birth set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. See, he's not preaching the rules and regulations of Christ. He's preaching you need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what changes everything, a relationship. And then he goes on to say, verse 17, I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and came back to Damascus. So here's this time period that he's going about, and he's preaching the word of God, and he's encouraging others to accept the gospel message. What gave Paul the boldness, or Saul the boldness, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. The bottom line is, he was a changed man from the inside out, and when God changed his life, he gave him a new focus and a new direction. For a moment, turn over to Romans chapter 6. Right after the book of Acts, Romans chapter 6. And here's the deal I want us to think about just for a moment. Our life, the things that we do in, our, in living it every day. So what should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may multiply? Some of your transformations may say, God forbid. Holman Christian says, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. For if we have been joined with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's domain over the body may be abolished so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. What's he saying here? And you remember, Ananias had an opportunity to be a part of this in his life. As soon as he got to where Saul was staying and the scales came off his eyes and began to see what was the next thing that happened. He was baptized. And remember, I say this very often, every time we have a baptismal service, what takes place? When I stand in the water, I form a what? A cross. I am boldly, unapologetically saying I want to identify with Christ. By standing in the water, I am identifying with Christ. What did Christ do on the cross? He died, and then he was buried, and then he rose again. Here is the significance for the life of a believer. When I come to know Jesus Christ as my Savior, I am crucifying the old life. 
I'm putting it to death. The things that, I, that consume my mind as far as the worldly uh, desires and affections and cares and concerns, all those things are put to death. And as I come up out of the water, the old man is crucified, now I have a new way of life. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? He's a new creation, new things have come. I have a new direction, a new focus, a new purpose, and that life it should be no longer. And then he goes on to say, should I continue in sin just because God's grace is there? Just because I know that he'll forgive me? No. Those desires ought to be put to death. So he goes on in verse 7, since a person who has died is freed from sin's claims, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For in the light of the act that he died, he died to sin once for all. But in the light of that fact that he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Why? Everything has changed. I don't any longer live for the things of the past. I now live for the things of the future. In God. Therefore, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness, for sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. Over and over throughout the whole book of Romans, in chapter 6, verse 7, or chapter 7, chapter 8, you're going to see that there is a battle that's going to take place between the flesh and the spirit. And chapter 8 gives them the idea that they who want to live in the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. They who want to live in the spirit set their mind on the things of the spirit. Daily there is a choice as to how we are going to live. We can either live as though we've never been baptized, or we can live as though we're going to live for Christ. The choice is ours. He doesn't stop there. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3 just for a moment. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. So here's the question that he poses here. And it's a, hypo it's a rhetorical thing for all of us to answer in our minds. You see, when Saul met the Lord Jesus Christ, everything changed. I don't think there's any picture of Saul straddling the fence here. I don't think you see in Paul's life, well, you know, I kind of want to follow the disciples, but you know, the chief priests are going to be really ticked at me if I don't, so I'm going to kind of play this game. I'm going to kind of you know, live for both sides. Paul understood the choice. He understood the commitment, and he was willing to accept the consequence of going all in. So here's the thing that all of us have to consider in our own lives. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. It says so, and there's a big, big two-letter word right after the word so. If. If. So what's so huge about that? Read the rest of the verse. If you have been raised with the Messiah, seek what is above, where the Messiah is, and see at the right hand of God. So if that is a true statement, if you are a child of God, you are to seek those things above. So by what I'm seeking in my day-to-day -day living, does it reveal the fact that I am a follower of Christ? Or does it reveal that I'm still living for the things of this world? <coughs> Verse 2 says, set your mind on what is above, not on what is on the earth. 
For you have died, where is that whole picture again of dying to self? It's that whole picture of again when I when I stood before before the, the congregations, I stood before the public and I publicly identified myself as a believer in Christ and I buried the old life. There's that word death again. It's been put to death. So since for you have died and your life is hidden with the Messiah and God, and when the Messiah who is your life is revealed, then you also are revealed with him in glory. That's why Paul later says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ, what? Lives in me. So the bottom line is, he said, when I go out in public, I don't want people to see Saul. I don't want to see Paul. I want them to see a picture of Christ. Somebody who's been transformed by the gospel. Somebody who has a different set of values to live for. And it's those of Jesus Christ. Verse 5, so he reminds us again, Therefore, put to death what belongs to your worldly nature. And then he gives us some examples of that. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath comes on the disobedient. And I love this verse, verse 7. It says, and you, what's the word? Once walked in these things when you were living in them. Then the verse 8, but now... You must also put away all the following anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices, and put on the new self. You are being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of your Creator. In Christ, there is no Greek and Jew, circumcision, uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free, but Christ is, is all and in all. So, what's he saying here? There is a change that takes place. There is a powerful new change of life, direction, so forth. But he says, that's in the past. You once did these things. So the question is, are the things that are supposed to be in our old life, are they still there? Or have they crept into the new? Listen, God changed his life. And that's why he had boldness to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The commitment was that I'm all in. I'm not partially in. I'm not partway in. I'm all in. And there is a great and huge challenge here. And we need to ask ourselves the question, are we living for God? Because here's what 2 Timothy reminds us in chapter 3, verse 2. It says, in fact, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what? Will be persecuted. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean all of us are going to be facing the death squad. We're not standing before a firing line. We may never have our head decapitated, although some people in some parts of the world are. Thank God for the freedoms that he's given us. But it says, in fact, all those who want to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And we have a hard time getting around that word all. What does all mean? all and I wonder if it's we don't face it because we're really not taking a stand I don't, I don't want you to raise your hand but I, don't, I want us to really think about this for a moment how many of us are truly literally re realistically taking a stand for the cause of Christ in our world that we live in because if you do you will have looks you will have people say you're strange you're out in left field it's going to happen in the world that we live in. Um, humorously, some of you know I have a t-shirt that says PETA on the front of it in big letters, P-E-T-A. 
It's kind of a, a run on words with the PETA association. Only mine says people eating tasty animals. And on the back of it, it says there's room for all God's creatures right next to my mashed potatoes and gravies. Um, it's kind of funny. I was in a store locally here, right up the road, and uh, I was standing in front of the line, and this person looks at me and says, that's a disgusting shirt. Okay. <laughs> I got broad shoulders. Um, what is it that we're willing to take a stand for? Now, to me, that is just a humorous little thing. She didn't like my shirt because she obviously thought that, you know, as a vegetarian, it's somewhat better for you or something. I don't know. Um, I saw a post on Facebook lately that says, I'm a secondhand vegetarian. I eat the cows who only eat the greenery. So um, I'm a secondhand vegetarian. Um, bottom line is, when you stand for truth, people around you are going to take notice. And we're so afraid in the culture that we live in. Listen, can I just say it? Homosexuals don't care that you th what you think about them. ISIS does not care. Muslims do not care what you think about them. Why? They're only concerned with what they believe and what is important to them. But I find as Christians, so often we don't want to say anything because we're afraid of what they might say back to us. Right? We don't want to open our mouth because they might get upset. I don't see that in life of Paul. I don't see that. I don't really think that he cared whether or not the Muslims were next door and they might be upset with them. I really don't think that he cared that there might be a homosexual person three doors down that might be upset if he takes a stand for what God, believes, God says about marriage. I'm not saying to make enemies. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, are you willing to stand? When the opportunities come to have the important conversations of life with those who are in our sphere of influence, are you willing to take a stand for what we know is right, what we know is true? Let's go back to our text in Acts chapter 9. How godly are our lives? Is there any difference between us and the world around us? You see, what, one of the things that made Saul's life stand out is because there was such a drastic change. I mean, he went from one extreme of living for the religion of the world, of his day, to living for the applause of the chief priests, from living for all the things that mattered to man, to all the things that mattered for God. The proof was in the pudding. His life changed. He didn't care what anybody thought anymore. Because now he's living for the audience of one. And by the way, Galatians chapter 1 verse 10 says this. That if I should please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. We are not here to please man. It says if you are living to please man, you can't be the servant of Christ. Galatians 1.10, look it up. We find something unique that happens here in this passage. I mean, here he is. He is trying to be obedient to what God has called him to do. Not trying, he's doing it. But as he's doing it, he's realizing that this road is not going to be easy. He's going forward. The Jews want to kill him. The Hellenistic Jews want to kill him. They're waiting at the gates of the city, just watching for the opportunity that they might get him. 
The disciples are a little leery of whether or not they can really trust them. So he didn't have really friends there. Look at verse 30. When the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. We've got to protect this guy. I mean, he's actually... People are going to kill him if he sticks around here. Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace being built up and waking, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the courage of the Holy Spirit and it increased in numbers. Question came to my mind. So the church has peace. <laughs> I think the church did have peace for a couple of reasons. Number one, their worst enemy was no longer an enemy. The fear that many Christians had was beginning to subside as they saw God's hand on the life of Saul. There was peace there. In fact, it says, So the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace. And three things happened. They were being built up. See, their focus was on, we got to grow. We have to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. We need to be built up in Him. Where is our protection, folks? Where? In Christ. You want to be strong? You be strong in Christ. They're being built up. Number two, they were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. That's huge. You see, God's Word tells us that the fear of the Lord is the what? Beginning of wisdom. And to have the Holy Spirit walking with us, is there any other better way to walk? And as a result of it, the third thing, the church increased in numbers. Persecution had subsided. People were being built up. They're walking in the fear of the Lord and encouragement of the Holy Spirit. The church increased in numbers. Paul had boldness because his life changed and he all had a new focus, a new purpose, a new, a new direction in life. So if we truly know Jesus Christ, think about this. The direction that we now have in him ought not be the same direction that we had before him. And I'm not just talking about, for a little while I got excited. Now I'm kind of... And here's the... Here, what happens in the life of a child? Man, when that baby is born, everybody and their brother, their uncle, people they don't even know are excited about that new baby, aren't they? First birthday, I mean, it's all out. I mean, hundreds of dollars, big cake, only for him to smash it in his face. And the videos are going, the cameras are going. I mean, everybody's excited. I mean, people you don't even know are excited because the baby has turned one. What happens when you turn 50? Do they even give parties for that? Right? Rare, right? See, there's all excitement when it's new and it's fresh and things are happening. You know what happens in the life of a church? Let's be honest. Same thing. You see, when a church is planted, there's all kinds of excitement. Everybody wants to give to it. We're going to put money into it, and we're going to encourage them, we're going to resource them, and we're going to help them out, and everything's exciting. Big dealings. When a church turns 50, you got people who've been in there for 30 and 40 years, and it's just status quo. And they're Hey, nobody's fighting, nobody's upset. Eh, yeah, it could be better, but you know, oh well. Satisfied. 
Folks, don't ever get satisfied. People ask me all the time, how's the church? And I'm like, well, um, in what way? I mean, I don't have anybody out and out fighting with anybody. That's cool. Better than some churches can say. Um, people growing? Yeah, people are growing. I have a good group of guys that come out to Bible study on Thursdays and Tuesdays, and one of the ladies, yeah, yeah, good group. That's good. What about the hard questions? When complacency sets in, when lethargy, set, lethargy sets in, when when we just become satisfied, let's ask the hard questions. When's the last time we see someone come to know Lord Jesus Christ? When's the last time we baptized somebody? When's the last time we had somebody in our home who wasn't a churchy person? Because we only invite church people into our home. Two hands and a foot, as I say. We have become satisfied. We don't face persecution because we ain't really taking a stand. Let's be honest. This ought to be a wake-up call to all of us. It really ought to be a wake-up call to all of us. Saul was so changed by the gospel that everything changed in his world around him. He had boldness because he realized what it was that was consuming his life versus what needed to be consuming his life. And he did something about it. He let God use him. And if we're honest, we've become pretty well satisfied. Tell me I'm wrong. We're just okay. And we're okay with okay. I hope that doesn't consume us. I think there's a lot to learn from the life of Saul. And how God used him mightily through the difficulty, through the persecution, through the heartache. God molded him. And I say this often. We pray for a life of ease. Anyone else? I do. We pray for God's blessing, don't we? Let's be honest. My hand's up. I pray for God's blessing. I don't like hardships. I can't stand it. I'm just telling you. I cannot stand it when I go to one of my cars and it doesn't want to start. It's an inconvenience to me. I just, it drives me nuts. And the older I get, the less patience I have for that junk. Maybe you're in the same boat. I just want, I don't need brand new, I just need it to work. I'm happy with, I'm happy with work. We pray that when we go on a trip that we'll have no flat tires and the car will run great both there and back. We pray that we, that God's hand of protection would be on us so that no harm befalls us, right? Let's be honest. We pray that we don't get sick and if we do that it would be really short lived. Because we don't want to endure it too long. We pray for a life of ease in a thousand different ways. Maybe that's not what God has for us. Maybe God wants us to go through some hardships. And maybe if we would stand up for Christ in a greater sense, be a little more bold, that we would understand what Paul went through. That it was not going to be an easy path. 
I'm going to show him how great he must suffer. And I don't like that. And you probably don't either. But it's what God's design for him was. Now, let me just also say this and clarify it. I'm not praying that God would bring the judgment on us either. I'm not praying that we'll go through difficulty just so we can relate. I don't want to. But what if he does? How are we going to respond? I just know that his whole life changed because he made a commitment to follow. It wasn't a half-hearted commitment. It wasn't easy believism. Because it got really real as soon as he got shipwrecked and stoned and whipped and bitten by serpents. All in following Jesus Christ. The very things that we would not want to happen to us. It got very real. The commitment was real. I think sometimes we need to read a story like this just so we understand just how real it is. Because I need that reminder. Maybe you do too. That serving God should be a very active thing in our life, not a passive thing. I encourage you. Reach out to those around you. Let God use you. God says, I, I've said, you've heard me say this a thousand times in the last five and a half years. The eyes of God run to and fro throughout the whole earth to do what? Make you look good? To show himself strong in him whose heart is perfect towards him. And the word perfect means mature. So God says, I'm looking for mature people that I can work through. It's not about your abilities, your strengths, your giftedness, your talents. Put all that aside, doesn't matter. God says, I'm looking to show myself strong through you. Let me do it. And if you'll let him, he will. That's Paul. Let's pray.